it's important to ask yourself, why am I here? Or why are we all here? One condition is our personal aspiration. We have some understanding that making this kind of effort will further our fulfillment of our aspiration. But there's also a conjunction of conditions that has come together with the creation of this retreat center, the service of the staff, the availability of discretionary time for each one of us, the uh, availability of the Dharma being taught and practiced in the West. And there are just a vast web of unseen conditions weaving this moment, this opportunity into existence. And one of the conditions is rooted far in the past beyond our memory. And it concerns an ascetic that is reputed to have lived hundreds of thousands of eons and lifetimes ago at the time of who was then the Buddha, Dipankara Buddha. And this ascetic, it was said, had so purified his mind that if he had heard a single teaching from a Buddha, he would have uh, realized the liberated mind and been freed from suffering and the causes of suffering. But one day as this ascetic was wandering in the village for his daily alms, he saw that the village was preparing for, excitedly for some event, inquired what was going on and heard that the Buddha Dipankara was coming to town. So he along with the other villagers, went to the roadside and prepared a place where the Buddha would pass by. And when Dipankara Buddha came into view, the clarity of this ascetic's perception saw the radiance, the benevolence, the gentleness of Dipankara Buddha and had a spontaneous urge, aspiration, intention to one day become a Buddha like Dipankara Buddha. Well, with his omniscient vision, Dipankara Buddha kind of knew that something was happening with that ascetic on the side of the road and did a quick karmic scan and said and realized that this ascetic would indeed, or had the potential for one day becoming a Buddha. And so he confirmed to Dipankara Buddha, as Dipankara Buddha confirmed to the ascetic Sumedha, as Buddhas do, um, that one day he would become a Buddha. That qualified the ascetic for uh, the Bodhisattva path to awakening.
and thereafter he willingly undertook hundreds of lifetimes in all the realms of existence undergoing the most exalted and glorious lifestyles as well as the most challenging and difficult conditions in life in order to perfect the ten paramis in order to bring them to a state of development that was so uh, mature and so purified of unwholesomeness that they became the default setting of his mind the first response in every situation the paramis 2500 years ago that being was born as a prince or the son of a wealthy nobleman in India and through his education and lifestyle uh, lived a pretty regal life but because of the momentum the karmic momentum of his life his trajectory of that mind stream he continued his work to fulfill the requirements of a bodhisattva in becoming a Buddha undertook six years of ascetic discipline and training and in time realized the truth becoming a Buddha the Buddha of our age Gotama Buddha he then taught what he had realized for 45 years and those teachings have been handed down practiced and realized by 2500 years of successive generations of men women monks and nuns much like ourselves. and in the middle of last century those teachings arrived at the mind of Mahasi Sayadaw who taught Anagarika Manindra and Saito Bandita who taught us and other Western teachers who are now sharing with you it is because of the intention of that ascetic Sumedha so long ago in a long forgotten historical past it is in part due to that intention that we are here today hmm. what makes a single thought so powerful as to have dramatic profound consequential effect for so long affecting so many people so beneficially I mean, we have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> Thankfully, some of them don't have much consequence. But even those that we want to have a wholesome consequence, it sometimes is difficult to see how that could possibly happen. The Buddha said that intention 
is karma. The quality of the intention to think or to have a thought or to speak or to act, the quality of that intention determines the result. This understanding is an expression of the law of karma. Now the law of karma is the law of cause and effect, really. It's a natural law. It is the law of moral causation. It is an articulation of what has been observed by those who have paid careful attention to the unfolding of the mind. Just as scientists somewhere in the past have observed the cycle, the natural cycle of seeds that planted, produced trees, produced fruit, produced similar seeds, and seasons that produce roughly rhythmic cycles of weather uh, that scientists who have observed that have been able to articulate the physical and biological and the genetic beginning to the genetic laws that govern the unfolding of those respective realms of existence. Well so too those who have observed the mind have been able to observe how the mind unfolds in a karmic stream, in a cause-effect relationship. And the teachings of the law of karma is an articulation of what has been observed. It's not like somebody invented the law of karma and said, oh, this sounds like a good thing to, to give humans. But rather, it's what's been observed. It's a natural law, sufficient unto itself. Robert Greene Ingersoll says, in nature, there is neither rewards nor punishment. There are consequences. And we understand that, that the life of animals in the wild, the life of the biosphere of the earth, it's not like there are rewards and punishment. There are causes and effect and consequences of actions. And we see that it's natural to the extent that we can see and understand, we see that what happens is a natural effect of natural causes. In brief, the law of karma states those actions, thoughts, speech, and behavior that originate from a mind that is filled with love, understanding, generosity, compassion, those thoughts, actions, and speech that arise from that pool produce pleasant results, both immediately and in the future, when the karmic seeds ripen. Those speech, thoughts, and actions that spring from a pool of self-interest, aversion, 
confusion, desire, attachment, they produce or they condition unpleasant results. Unpleasant physical, unpleasant mental, both now and in the future. Why is it important for us to understand the law of karma? To hear it, to take it in, to consider it, if not to believe it, at least to suspend our doubt and judgment and allow our practice to reveal to us whether the law of karma is a useful understanding in the practice that we do. One reason is that if we understand the law of karma, it can be a powerful ally in our practice. It can help us to make sense of suffering. It can help us to persevere in fulfilling our aspiration. It can encourage us to arouse, generate, propagate, wholesome actions to capitalize on the good conditions, the pleasant conditions that we have now, and to understand the unpleasant conditions that inevitably arise in this life. It also helps us to adopt a wise attitude towards changing conditions which we seemingly have no control over. It helps us to understand the power of habit and the freedom from habit that's possible through awareness. It gives us the opportunity, it encourages us to take the opportunity to co-create the future in line with our aspiration. The law of karma is not only a lesson from the past teaching us, you know, like a shaming, guilt-inducing big finger in the sky, but rather it's an open invitation to imagine the future that you would like to live that you would like to experience, you, yourself, or others, and to take those actions that are more likely to produce that result. Wow. But we should, we should not mistake the law of karma as a panacea or as an oppressive burden, because not everything we experience is a result of karma. The coolness of the weather this past week has nothing to do with our karma. And the reputed, or the projected, 90 degree weather that's coming in a couple of days also has nothing to do with your good Dharma behavior today.
the Buddha said, beings are heirs of their karma. It means we inherit our karma. What we live with is what we've inherited. What we create is what we'll enjoy later. When we understand this, or when we're open to this possibility, it gives us pause to consider before we speak, think, or dwell in thought, or act, what or where is this coming from? What is the motivation in my heart? What is the um, source of this behavior? What is the rationale? What is the justification? And often enough, as you have noticed, no doubt, in your practice these few days, our thoughts, our speech, and our actions spring from I want more of this and I want less of that. Thank you. <laughs> and deeply conditioned habits bound to arise. And yet we have also seen and also all have been cultivating the ability to see clearly when attachment and aversion arise in reaction to pleasant and unpleasant experience we've seen our capacity to stop, exercise some restraint, carefully consider how to respond, and take a different course of action because of awareness. So much of what we do here is based on the wholesome intention to awaken. We came here for wanting to develop some wholesome qualities, some awareness, some understanding, some compassion, to take a look at the habits of mind that cause us so much distress and to let go of them. This is, this is wholesome motivation. We could say everything we do here is in pursuit of that or in fulfillment of that wholesome motivation. And some of what we do capitalizes on it and magnifies it. And some of it kind of <laughs> doesn't quite meet the task. But we're here. Before we act, and sometimes you'll see it even before you think or before you continue thinking a thought that has arisen there is an impulse in the mind. There is a turning of the mind to speak, to act, to move the body, to continue thinking. And it is in that impulse, that intention, that karma is visible. The karmic source, the karmic roots is visible. And that's why we offer the instruction to really pay attention to the intention, the impulses in each moment or that are apparent in many moments of our life here. Just where is it coming from? 
Is it coming out of deeply conditioned reactive habit? Or is it springing from awareness and understanding rooted in compassion for ourselves and others, generosity, understanding? And we see, we clearly see that we have a choice. We have a choice. Sometimes we make the best of choices and sometimes, well, habit prevails. But this ascetic Sumedha, a single thought, such a powerful intention. What makes our intentions powerful or insignificant? One of them, or one condition, is the energy of the mind. If the mind is energized and alert and active and engaged with present moment, it is more likely to have an energetic intention and having a powerful, a more powerful result. The frequency with which you have that thought, that intention, or speak or act in that way, how often you do it also makes that act more powerful, both cumulatively but in the moment because if you do something often, it becomes a habit. Habits have a are a powerful stream of intention. And if we, no doubt we have seen unskillful habits but intentional, wholesome habits can become equally powerful. Where the urge to be generous is spontaneous, it just, there's no, there's hardly any reflection and consideration or waffling or wavering in the mind. It's just spontaneous. Whether it's loving kindness or generosity or an understanding or compassion, kindness, being patient, these too can become powerful, wholesome habits of mind. So the energy of the mind, the frequency. A third condition is the purity of the mind. How pure the mind is, meaning how free of the defilements the mind is, has an effect on, has a deeply conditioning effect on how powerful the intention is because the purified mind is straight. It sees the means to the end and it, it makes a, an effective and an appropriate intention to reach those ends. An impure mind or a contaminated mind or a waffling mind it is kind of hesitant, it's kind of maybe, it's reflective, it's a little bit self-interested, but kind of want to be compassionate, but not quite. And, and well, you can see an intention springing from that mind is weak. It just doesn't have the strength of a purified mind that sees the means to the end. But we should understand that as we perform karma, or as and since we have performed karma, that 
the result is not resting in here now. It's not planted as a fruit in the mind, but the potential is there. Karmic acts are like seeds. We spread them on the ground and where and when they find fertile conditions, they sprout giving rise to the fruit. The ground upon which we spread or we th sow our karmic seeds is our mind. That's where they land. They land in our mind. And if the mind is a wholesome, well-prepared, pliable, adaptable, uh, clear mind, wholesome seeds take, take, take root and sprout and, and pro proliferate. But a purified mind is, an, is a hostile place for unwholesome intention. In the course of just being on a retreat and being in a group and purifying your mind and just becoming more sensitive and more gentle and more aware of your own motivations, unwholesome impulses that might have occasion to arise in the mind they don't get so much support for acting them out. We're kind of protected from unwholesome seeds that might have occasion to sprout while we're here. On the other hand, you know, if, if one was so unfortunate as to be living a life of crime and deceit and deception and uh, uh, fear, it's really hard to have and to recognize a spontaneous impulse to be generous and kind and loving. It just doesn't get the opportunity to arise in that kind of mind. And so we sculpt our present moment's experience by the quality of our mind in the present moment. Not only do we, do we draw to us supportive karmas, but we plant seeds of similar karma to bear fruit in the future. I saw this over many years when I first started meditation practice and I went to the meditation center in Massachusetts and it was on staff. And first year I was on staff there, this Burmese monk came to America, came to the meditation center, and offered some teachings. And he was Tongpulo Sayadaw that I, that I mentioned the other night. And I'd never seen a monk before. I didn't know what monks were or who they were or what they did or anything about them. But I heard his, the story of his life. And when I saw him, I th it was something like, the ascetic Sumedha. I saw him and I, and I was with him for a week or 10 days and just around him. And there was a feeling of like, this man, this monk has something that I'd like to have. I'd like to, to, not, to be like that. I didn't want to live in a cave for 30, 33 years, but there was some quality of being, some quality of mind, some presence that was 
really palpable, it was noticeable, and it was admirable. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but I aspired to, to, to uh, emulate, if not acquire, that. But conditions were not supporting it. I was not wise enough. I didn't have any financial resources. I didn't know how to go about it. I, it was just, I could want it and wish it as much as I possibly could, and it wasn't going to happen. It didn't happen. It took eight years of further intensive practice, becoming more knowledgeable, purifying my own mind, my own aspiration, and eight years later, the opportunity arose where there was the knowledge, the aspiration, the intention, the energy, the money, the supportive relationships, and off to Burma I went and ordained. To struggle with our aspirations is not very useful, but to recognize our aspiration and to keep moving towards or in that direction will draw the karmic fruits that support it. And in time, the seeds of your aspiration will bear fruit. We just have to nurture the seeds of our aspiration. You think about it, if you really aspire to be kind, generous, understanding, unentangled in suffering and the causes of suffering, who can stop you? <laughs> if you aspire to that and you keep moving in that direction, nobody can stop you. You, have, you may have to deal with and come to terms with uh, opposing conditions or challenging conditions, but these only further provide the opportunity and the growth for fulfilling your aspiration. Everything becomes an opportunity to fulfill some condition for your aspiration. Well, with that, with that understanding and that view, everything you meet in your practice, all the difficulties, all the challenges, it's not like we have to get into la-la, oh yeah, this is my teacher, I love it. No, I don't like it, I don't like it at all. But nevertheless, we understand that in coming to terms with it, in finding a way to accommodate karmic conditions, we develop the resources and the support for fulfilling our future aspiration. This makes the law of karma a tremendous ally in our practice. Whether it's right or wrong really doesn't matter. Because if we have this understanding and live with that understanding, we will progress on our path. That's the meaning of skillful, or right understanding, or right view, or right understanding. It's not that it's right in terms of anybody but yourself in the sense of, does it lead to skillful thoughts, speech, and behavior that don't cause harm to yourself or others? That's the Buddhist spin. The Buddhist spin on right is, does it cause harm or not? Does it cause the end of suffering or not? 
That's what makes it right or uh, wrong or not unskillful. There are many ways of understanding the conditions that we live with. For many years, I've had a a digestive distress. And it started back in high school and had it all through college and all through my early and mid-adult years where just not comfortable in the abdomen. And in college, it was a pack of Rolades a day just to feel comfortable. And I tried everything. I went to uh, allopathic doctors who, you know, did the scan, checked for ulcers, did whatever, you know, and take, take Rolades. And they went to, <laughs> you know, I went to naturopathic doctors and they did their thing and made some other suggestions, a diagnosis and suggestions. Went to the acupuncturist, you know, and they checked the meridians of energy and said, you know, we got some imbalance in these meridians, gave me a few needles and, and um, went to uh, massage, went to other body workers, went to chiropractors. They all had their way of understanding, diagnosis and prescription. And while it was kind of entertaining to get it all, something was not so pleasant. I went, when I was in Burma, Saito Bandita offered me his Burmese doctor. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I have this distress and, you know, explained it a little bit. So he, he, he did a diagnosis. And the way he diagnoses things is he, he says certain words or he does certain things. And depending on the first letter of that word and your response, there's a, there's a meaning. So one of the tests that he did was he took a cigar and he put it between my big toe and my other toe, the next toe, did some muscle testing and said, oh, okay. Then he lit the cigar. Well, lighted cigar is different than not lit cigar, right? Different, different word. Lit the cigar, put it back between the toe, did muscle testing, saw the difference and prescribed nerve massage. Now, if you think muscle massage is, or deep tissue massage is sometimes painful with a, with a twinge of pleasure, nerve massage is no pleasure. It is just intense massaging of dry, grinding of the nerves against the bone. It's a cure, you know, for, for, for ever going to a doctor like that. <laughs> but... I lived, <laughs> came back to America, by which time there were those who offered healing through crystal placement. So I laid down and I got the crystals placed, you know, on me with ta-da. It wasn't until I actually just started paying attention to the signs or the symptoms and just feeling them for the pleasant or unpleasant physical condition that they were. Uh, tightness, pressure, bubbling, in which the mind came to just accept this is, this is the way it is. 
didn't try to fix it, didn't, didn't have a prescription that there was something wrong, but just thought this is the way it is. And the mind came into some easeful relationship to it. And, well, frankly, the symptoms cleared. If only I'd known. But it was from treating it as a karmic effect and treating it with additional wholesome karmas. Not to get rid of it, not to fix it, not to blame it, not to, but just to, to be with it, with patience, understanding, loving kindness. And it comes to some resolution. Well, not all unwholesome karmas manifest as physical symptoms. A lot of it's in the mind. But if we have the understanding of karma in our repertoire of diagnoses, we have a prescription. If we have, if we understand that unpleasant physical and mental experiences is some, is partially conditioned by unwholesome actions, we can work with that. We can develop wholesome mind in relation to, or in response to, those unpleasant feelings. The Buddha was asked during his time, why is it that some beings are healthy and some are unhealthy? Some live to a ripe old age and some die young. Some are born into wealthy, exalted positions and some are very low-born or, or poor. Some are really bright, intelligent, wise, and some are really dull and, and stupid. And he said, if you want to be, if you want to live a long life, don't kill. If you want to be healthy, don't harm. If you want to be beautiful, be loving. If you want to be influential, have and express sympathetic joy. If you want to be wealthy, be generous. If you want to be wise, then inquire, be curious, and question the way of things. There's a certain, we don't even have to believe in the law of karma to have a an appreciation of that kind of logic. Maybe we can't prove it. Maybe we can't confirm it at all times. But there is a certain... something that's easy to agree with about that. And we should pay particular attention about this if you wish to be wise. Because it is wisdom. It is right understanding that frees the mind of confusion, delusion, the defilements, and therefore suffering. To be wise, we must be curious. We must inquire. We must look to understand how things happen. Not so much in the outer world that science has done such a good job of 
looking at and understanding. But it's at the inner world. How do things happen here? How do I get entangled in suffering and really come to understand it? Almost from as if from a scientific investigation of how does the mind work? How does the mind unfold? And being really curious and inquisitive, not just accepting what anyone has said, but to know for ourselves. And that's required. It's not from thinking. Our thoughts are only mm, massaging other thoughts in different ways. But through direct inquiry and observation and this investigation through awareness, we come to see and know for ourselves this is the way it is in this mind for the production of happiness or sorrow or suffering. And we understand, each one of us understands for ourselves based on our own experience. Not that we're so different, but each one must realize the Dharma for him or herself. It can't be given, it can't be bought, it can't be sold, it can't be uh, anointed. It can be learned through practice. Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda about karma. And he said, the ordinary man or woman sees events in life as either a blessing or a curse. But the man or woman of power and knowledge sees every event as an opportunity for awakening. As difficult as it is, it's not a curse. It's not a punishment. It too is an opportunity. No matter how good it is, it's not just a blessing or a boon or a gain. It's an opportunity to awaken, to come to know more about the way it is in here, the way it is in our heart. As we begin to see more of our own minds unfolding and understand and make the adjustments uh, to choose less suffering, we will naturally reflect on our actions before we speak, before we act. I was sitting at home. Uh, Kamala and I did a, a month-long self-retreat at home during May. And while we still have to check the email and, and do a few phone calls each day, we still had a lot of time to practice. And for some reason, my practice was a lot about watching and noticing this talking head in my mind. You know these spinmeisters that come on after every event? They're on TV, they're on the blogs, they're on the web. They're just incessant stream spewing out observations, opinions, ideas, criticisms, judgments. I got one inside me. 
my mind is a talking head. You know, but I, in seeing that, it came with the understanding that I could choose to believe or not believe and to act on or to not act on every observation, every thought, every judgment, every intention, most of which, I have to say, most of which was best left just passing through. I just, there's just no need to express or share or act on or do anything to get rid of well, I saw at least 90% or more of what goes through the mind. But if we don't look, we won't see. And we'll think that our observations, our thoughts, our intentions, our judgments are, are all valid, all true, and we'll put them out there into our life to wreak havoc as they often do. It is so freeing to see the incessant impulses in the mind to be seen, to be heard, to be recognized, for whatever. And what we do to, 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 to get it. It is really humbling. I mean, the mind has no shame. <laughs> it, it will do anything to get attention, to get recognized, to get seen. And it takes, you know, an understanding of just the value of just watching it all unravel knowing that even to think is a karmic act. To think twice about the same thing is, a, is strengthening that karmic act. And if it becomes something we speak about, it's even a stronger karmic act. And if we act it out, good luck. <laughs> Mindfulness is so valuable partly because it is an internal mentor. It is the BS detector in your mind. It is what tells you this is skillful, this is not. We hear, and depending on your political, spiritual, religious, sociological uh, tribe, you can, you can you can find all kinds of advice for you. It's, it's often at the checkout counter at the grocery store. <laughs> there's, there's just endless advice how to live your life, what to do, what not to do. But it's all coming from someone's mind. Whose mind do you trust more than your own? Really. Think carefully about that. I mean, and to the extent that you invest in purifying and understanding your own mind, it just becomes that much more valuable. Our practice is a massive investment 
in our minds. Just purifying our minds, purifying our understanding, so that we're more likely to fulfill our aspiration. Everything we see, hear, read, talk about, imagine, it goes in there. It goes in this mind. It doesn't go away. It is in there. And as we look and as we pay attention, it comes up for review. And every time it comes up, you have the opportunity either to reaffirm it or abandon it. Every time. And while there was some reason that we allowed it in there in the first place, out of desire, out of aversion, out of confusion, out of who knows what, everything. Every time it comes up in the purity of the aware mind, we have a choice to see this is where it's really coming from. Is this skillful or is this unskillful? We don't need other authorities. We need awareness, which becomes our own internal mentor, the guide to what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. Mindfulness awakens what is called ujjukata or straightness of mind, the inability to deceive yourself anymore. Even though you might wish to, you can't. Mindfulness holds up a perfectly reflective surface to your intention. And you'll see it. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to endure the message that your mindfulness is telling you. Because it continually points to, this is the way to the end of suffering. This is the way to the end of suffering. And you have a choice. It's our choice. When I was in the monastery in Burma, when I ordained, Saito Bandita offered me robes in a bowl. And the robes were a kind of a, a common set of robes. They were about as heavy as horse blankets. They were extremely heavy. And they were really thick. And they were short, because I'm taller than the average Burmese. And they didn't quit, fit quite right. And come hot season, it was unbearable. Just absolutely unbearable. It's like wrapping up in a hot towel in a sauna. I mean, it. So I looked around at the other monks that looked so comfortable. And I saw, wow, look at those robes. Those are pretty nice. Those are really thin. They're just like, just like silk. So thin and, and so cool, I imagined. <laughs> so I was watching my mind. And I realized that the Burmese are so supportive of monks. They are so devoted to monks. They're so uh, happy to around monks and to, to support monks that if they see you looking at someone's set of robes, 
they'll go get you a set like that. If they see you admiring uh, a set of sandals or slippers, monastic slippers, you'll, you'll get them offered the next day. To see your mind at that level of intention, just <coughs> taking a second look at, wow, that umbrella is bigger. That'll really keep me dry during the monsoon season. Sure enough, next day, there it is at the door, waiting to be offered. When you see your mind at that level of intention, wow, the amount of restraint and the amount of renunciation is phenomenal. Or the mind will just proliferate endlessly. So once I was invited on a trip and I went to Sayadaw Bandita and said, you know, I'm going to be going on this trip with you. And, you know, <clears throat> it really would be nice if I had another set of robes. And Sayadaw just said, wow, you don't have enough robes? And I said, oh, yeah, I've got robes. But, you know, so that was good enough for him. Next day on alms round, and I went on alms round every day for years. Next day on alms round, I was going out and about. Someone offered me a set of robes. They didn't know me. They didn't know Saito. And I never got a set of robes offered to me before or after. So I was so happy. I was surprised, but so happy that I opened, it was like a back, I opened them up, put them on. They were made of, I don't know, some polyester or something that was very light, very flimsy, but unbearable. It was like being wrapped up in saran wrap. <laughs> it was terrible. I mean, instant karma, you know, I got it, but. Be careful what you want. You might get it. It is said, now this, is a, this takes a little steadier attention here for a minute. It's said that to intentionally perform an unwholesome act is less harmful consequences than if you don't know it is unwholesome. Okay. If you don't know that something's unwholesome and you do it, it is worse karmically than if you know it's unwholesome and you do it. That, that, that doesn't sound right, does it? It's like, isn't ignorance of the law some excuse? Why? Why would it be more karmically impactful if you are ignorant, unaware that something's harmful and you do it? Well, think about this. You don't know that it's harmful. So when you consider doing it, you have full enthusiasm and interest and you reflect on it frequently. And when you act it out, you do it with full reckless abandon and you get a lot of joy out of it and you reflect on it happily and you just all of those all of those thoughts speech and action is unwholesome so the result is going to be pretty powerful on the other hand if you know that something is not so skillful 
but eh, habit has its way, or you just say, oh, I'll live with the karmic consequences. You know. Well, when you consider doing it, well, you know, you're kind of hesitant, you have some second thoughts, you have a little bit of doubt, and, ah, I don't know, well, yeah. And so the intention is actually quite weak. And while performing that act, eh, you know, it's hard to, hard to be really happy about it because you know it's not such a good thing, so you don't get a lot of joy out of it anyway. And then you're reflecting on it later, you have a lot of remorse and regret, and geez. All, well, all of those second thoughts, all of those, that lack of joy at unwholesomeness, and all of those thoughts of remorse are skillful karmic actions that serve to mitigate the unwholesomeness of the act. Now, that doesn't mean you should just go out and say, hey, I know it's bad, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> because you do get that kar karmic result. But what this is pointing to is that the most important karma, the most significant karma, is your understanding. How you understand this. Do you see clearly this is wholesome, skillful, or this is unwholesome, unskillful? And that's what mindfulness, what we are developing here, that's what it reveals. It is so valuable. It is just so essential to practice as we are here to gain this knowledge for ourselves. It is the key to our liberation. It is the key to fulfilling our aspiration. It is the key to the end of suffering. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.